0: Welcome to PRIO's Peace in a Pod, where we at the Peace Research Institute Oslo bring you expert perspectives on the headlines, personal stories from the field, and cutting-edge research on the peace and conflict issues affecting today's societies. The last few months in Bosnia have been marked by moves towards secession and a flare-up of ethnic tensions emanating from Republika Srpska. The Serb-majority entity of Bosnia and Herzegovina established by the Dayton Peace Agreement, which put an end to the three-and-a-half-year-long Bosnian War. Commentators are describing the last few months as the worst political and security crisis since the war ended in 1995. In this episode, we discuss the current crisis and ask if what we are seeing in Bosnia is new to the country or part of a longer trend. We also discussed what these past few months tell us about the successes and shortcomings of formal peace agreements. I am Teuta Koklete, communicator at PRIO. With me today in the studio is Inger Shelspek, and joining us remotely from Sarajevo is Aida Ibricevic. Inger Kjelsbeck is a psychologist and peace scholar. Her research has focused on gender and armed conflict, and she wrote her PhD thesis on the aftermath of the use of mass rapes during the Bosnian War. After that, she has also written about the convicted perpetrators of these crimes who were sentenced in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Inger is now director of the Center for Gender Research at the University of Oslo, and she is also affiliated with PRIO and the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. Ingrid has just started working on a five-year project funded by the European Research Council, which will focus on European children born of war. That includes a large study of Bosnian children, who are now in their late 20s. Aida Ibricevic is a political scientist and migration scholar based in Sarajevo. Her research focuses on external voting, return migration, citizenship, emotions and politics, and the political economy of Bosnia and Herzegovina. She wrote her PhD thesis on the emotional citizenship of diaspora members returning to Bosnia and Herzegovina, and is now transforming her doctoral dissertation into a book. Aida is a global fellow at Prio, and she's affiliated as a research fellow with the Center for Diaspora Studies at the Sarajevo School of Science and Technology. Welcome, Aida and Uh, Thank you for joining me for uh, what is the 70th episode of um, Prio's podcast. Uh, Today we're talking about a crisis that does not receive as much media attention as it probably should. At least not here in Norway. Uh, So for people who have not followed Bosnia closely in recent months, uh, could you, Aida, give a recap uh, of what has happened in the past few months, what set off the current crisis, uh, and why we have seen a flare-up in ethnic
1: tensions? First of all, I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for inviting me. It's really an honor to to participate um, in this in the podcast. To answer your question, I would like to draw upon what you said initially: whether this what we see what we've been seeing in Bosnia for the past a couple of months is um, something completely new, or whether it's a part of a larger trend. I would say that it is part of a larger trend because these kinds of uh, threats and these Types of movements moves have been tested out before, but what we also at the same time what we have seen particularly since July 23rd uh, this uh, past year 2021 is something really very new and very 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 concerning. Uh, to describe the um, uh, situation uh, that that ordinary citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina, whether they're um, Croats or Serb or Bosniak or what the Dayton Peace Agreement refers to very pejoratively others, uh, meaning citizens of Bosnia-Herzegovina and people who do not associate with uh, the constituent peoples category. What they've been experiencing for the past uh, couple of months is truly uh, a reliving of the trauma of of, of the 1990s war. With this imminent threat of war coming again, it is also symbolic because we had uh, 1992, spring of 92, which is very uh, sort of ominous uh, for, for, for uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. And we have, you know, 30 years later, we saying, well, everything is pretty much the same except the Yugoslav National Army is not no longer in existence. We have the exact same dynamics and the exact same setup. So obviously those the reliving of trauma of the 1990s is something that is very much on everybody's mind, uh, regardless of ethnic or other types of belonging. So to answer your question concretely, what set off the crisis, I'd like to start off by talking about um, what in current parlance is referred to as INSCO's law. It is uh, the addition to the criminal code of Bosnia-Herzegovina that was declared by the outgoing uh, high representative Valentin Insko. Valentin INSCO, after more than a decade Closer to twelve years of political, largely self-imposed political insignificance, has decided on his uh, as he was leaving office to uh, do something that is that is actually truly important and will, which will mark the, his term, and that is to impose this law. And what law, this law does, or the addition to the criminal code does, is it forbids it criminalizes the denial of genocide. It makes it um, Criminal to um, undermine uh, the victims of mass atrocities and war crimes, and it doesn't do so. It does it does so rather neutrally. It does so on all different sides. So people that would be against uh, this type of, uh, of of addition to the criminal code are the people who are in favor of what is referred to in the literature as triumphalism, of triumphalizing and glorifying war criminals. So in no way is this uh, something against a particular people. It is against the denial of genocide, which is seen as, in fact, the beginning of a new genocide. It is against the Triumphalism and the glorification of war criminals. Now, this um, it needs to be pointed out, particularly to the Western audience, that yeah, yeah, this is an imposition from the office of the High Representative. A couple of things need to be uh, pointed out here. The first one being, the office of the High Represen- Representative is integral to the Dayton Peace Agreement, and the uh, office of High, Repres- High Representative is endowed with the possibility of, in fact affecting or um, making sure that the Dayton peace agreement is implemented including the criminalization of genocide denial that's the first point the second point is that it was earlier there were earlier attempts by bosnian politicians to actually uh, have this legislation enacted through the bosnian parliament those attempts have uh, Failed on numerous occasions. So, those two things need to be pointed out first to say that this is what has led, in fact, to the imposition of this, uh, of uh, criminalizing genocide denial. Now, criminalizing genocide denial also comes in the atmosphere where it is completely normal, in fact, to across, you know, towns and cities of Republika Srpska, see people wearing t-shirts of convicted war criminals, murals devoted to them, both in Republika Srpska and very recently, and this uh, event has received quite a bit of media attention, in Belgrade, in Serbia, a uh, mural in the center of, of Belgrade that is devoted to Radko Mladic, was a convicted war criminal. Similar things have been happening in Croatia as well, and the crowd dominated parts of Bosnia, where Another war criminal, Slobodan Praljak, is also enshrined in, in murals, both in Čaplina, for example, in, in, in Herzegovina, and also in Zagreb, recently in Croatia. So this is a, an atmosphere of, of actively celebrating the triumphalism of war crime and genocide. So this is the atmosphere in which this law comes, and it says, no, we cannot do that. We, we had the Second World War, we said never again, and we cannot accept we cannot accept genocide to be the basis of, 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 of state formation and um, statehood uh, ideology, right? So this is this is the, the what triggered it. Now, what happened? I'm just going to try to briefly summarize because so much has happened, and I'm going to I'm bound to leave out some things out of this timeline, things that are possibly important, but I'm going to try to be succinct. So. What started off is already in July, Milorad Dodik, who is the leader of the uh, SNSD and also the Serb member of the Bosnian parliament, he voiced uh, um, very strong opposition to this law. And uh, this has led to the withdrawal of uh, Republika Srpska politicians from all state institutions. Boycotting uh, Bosnian state institutions this already happened in the summer. Then what haf- happened after that was... We have the new High Representative coming in. This is the German politician Christian Schmidt, who, in fact, from uh, August when he came into office and up till until now, has been rather um, sidelined. He hasn't been taking an active role in this crisis whatsoever. So, I mean, he is and he could be endowed with bond powers, which are the abilities to the ability to install laws and remove politicians who are in active violation of the Dayton Peace Agreement. But he has not so far, has not used those Bond powers, has not interfered in any way uh, to actually be doing his job, which is making sure that the Dayton Peace Agreement is implemented. So that's from the high representative side. Now, on the domestic politician side, we have this boycott from Serb politicians that started in the summer. We have a very problematic vote that happens in December uh, of last year in the National Assembly of Republika Srpska that was indeed boycotted by the opposition. But still, what they voted is a, a series of conclusions that lead to what is effectively a transfer of power from the state to the entity leading towards secession. This is a series of legislation that have to do with tax uh, authority, that has have to do with the with judiciary, forming a separate army. Uh, medical uh, issues are also legislated in that. And a series of law, laws proposed to be passed within the National Assembly of Republika Srpska within the next six months that would effectively form first parallel institutions to the state ones, and then pave the way towards secession, uh, possibly some sort of attachment to to, to Serbia and the creation of, of a great Serbia. Uh, you know, the, what is also referred to by Vulin as the Serbian world, which is a, which is a new idea that has been floating around. Now, what we have in terms of. Um, this is what's going on in the in terms of Republika Srpska. Also, the geopolitics of the situation. We see uh, in November already the U.N. Security Council, where Russia is actually actively uh, supporting uh, these moves by the by the, the authorities of Republika Srpska. Also, China. Uh, we have uh, yes, a, an extension of the U4 uh, mission in in uh, the the EU Peacekeeping Force in 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 place in Bosnia. But this is quite a misnomer because this is very li- these are very likely armed dro- troops and only 600 of them, and an active uh, prohibition on any new NATO uh, presence on the ground. So this is what we have from the the, uh, UN Security Council. Uh, This obviously emboldens Dodik's moves, both by support from Russia and this sort of timid approach from the West in the the sense that, you know, no strong interventionist uh, attitude either from the EU, also from the U.S., the UK is somewhat different in that, but I, I kind of don't have the time to, to to devote to each individual member state and their uh, foreign policy because there are differences. Uh, so we have this declaration uh, in uh, December of the Serb National Assembly. We have uh, uh, calls for uh, sanctions. First of all, the sanctions came from the US, directed at Milor Dodik, and businesses associated with him, particularly this Alterna- Alternativa Televisia, which is a, a television station that uh, is pretty much uh, in, in favor of his policies. We have recently calls from the European Parliament again uh, for uh, uh, actually a vote 500 to 4, 504 to 93 uh, vote in the European Parliament calling for sanctions on Milera Uh So that's what has been going on the Surfront. Parallel to that there's large activities on a uh, reform of the electoral law or elections law within uh the federation and that's relevant because we have uh, the croat national uh party leader HDZ uh milorad uh, sorry uh, dragan calling for what is eff- what it would effectively mean a change to the elections law and a constitutional reform that would Form a third Croat-dominated entity within the Federation of Bosnia. That effort is large, is very much strongly supported by uh, Croatian President Zoran Milanovic. Uh, Dodik is receiving support from uh, Aleksandar Vučić and also Russia. And that whole setup, as I explained, with the UN Security Council. So you have a perfect storm, in fact, around the issue of what ultimately could be. Dissolution of the state, on one hand, secession from Repub- uh, by Republika Srpska, on the other hand, a declaration of uh, the, a third entity that would enshrine uh, Chovic as the what they re- what he refers to as the Croat legitimate representative, although legitimate representation amounts to gerrymandering and nothing else. This point can be further elaborated, and in fact, why is this going back to the beginning of this of this presentation? Why is this so reminiscent of the wars of the 1990s? Is a de facto partition of Bosnia, a creation of a greater Serbia and a greater Croatia. And in fact, Europe, if Europe does actually stand by this, abandonment of everything it stands for post-Second World War.
0: Thank you, Aida. Uh, What you're explaining relates to what some commentators have said about Bosnia, uh, that the country has actually been in a constant crisis ever since the Dayton peace agreement, and that the current crisis is a peak in this longer crisis. Even 26 years after the peace agreement was signed, uh, it still does not seem as though the different ethnic groups have come to terms with or established a common narrative about what happened uh, during the Yugoslav Wars and specifically during the Bosnian War. Uh, So I would like to ask Ingrid, since you have done a lot of work related to the judicial efforts following the Bosnian War, specifically Uh, at the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, Uh, and you have worked a lot on these judicial efforts to prosecute uh, wartime sexual violence. To what extent would you say that the Bosnian people have come to terms with the rulings
2: of international courts? Thank you for that question, Teguta, and thanks for having me on this um, program. And uh, hi also to Aida, and thank you for your great outline of what is going on, which is complex as we hear. And if I could just add to that before I get to your question, is also, you know, the, the Dayton Agreement, which is the foundation for kind of the constitution of Bosnia, was, you know, the aim was to get the war to stop. And, you know, there must, there hasn't been much done in terms of reform, Um uh, of that agreement to kind of transform Bosnia from a state of, of a post-conflict state to a proper state, so to speak. So, uh, so you know, it's been, been talked about in several corners as, you know, the most complicated constitutional setup in the world. And if you look at it, it's, it's very complex. And so these difficulties get kind of exacerbated also by the complexity of the constitution, which aim was to keep, you know, ethnic divisions down so that people wouldn't kill each other again. And, and, and so when I've commented on this before, I've said that, you know, Bosnia went from a, a warm war to a cold peace, so to speak, where things were kind of kept in place but not resolved. And I think we're still seeing uh, from the, the explanation that we just heard uh, that Bosnia is still in that state, so to speak. Now, as to, and, and like you say, you know, there have been several attempts, so many attempts at trying to address uh, what happened, uh, you know, domestically, international actors and so on. And of course, as you're referring to, uh, the international criminal um Tribunal or for the former Yugoslavia, which was, you know, set up at the time where there was a lot of hope in these kinds of mechanisms of transitional justice to have an effect not only in kind of restoring, um, some sense of, uh, or, or distributing a sense of kind of, uh, guilt and innocence in a way that people could agree on, but also in a way So we have the same kind of story about what happened. And I think it's fair to say, and this is not only so for Bosnia, but it's fair to say that transitional justice mechanisms over the years have flaws. And we see that also very clearly in the Bosnian case where the whole process has been terribly politicized That's one aspect of it where it have, has been seen. And Aida may speak more about this because she knows the situation from the inside, whereas I've just come and go. So I'm an, more of an outside observer. But, you know, that it's been construed as um, anti-Serb in some corners, anti-Croat in other corners. And so, so it's very difficult for that mechanism to have the desired effect that that we were kind of, or that people were hoping that it uh, would have. So that's one element. The other element is that it takes so incredibly long for these cases to be prosecuted. So going then to the issue of conflict-related sexual violence, which was prosecuted by the ICTY in a way that had never been done before, that the world had never seen. So it was extremely innovative in that that way. Uh, But... When we look at the cases, I mean, to begin with, most of the cases, or I would say half, half, almost half the cases before the tribunal had elements of sexual violence in them. But then in the end, the tribunal ended its work in 2017. There were only... Uh, in terms of perpetrators, there were only 33 perpetrators of conflict-related sexual violence out of the, what was it, 164 people who were uh, on trial in, in the court. Only 33 uh, that were convicted for sexual uh, violence crimes, and out of them, only about half were principal perpetrators as those who had committed these acts so from the perspective of the victim they, these are low numbers and their sentencing varies and, and they serve their sentences in 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 prisons around western Europe uh, mostly uh, and have in Material terms, relatively good lives, despite being deprived of their freedoms, but but so the mechanism that feels unjust uh, to a lot of people uh, for good reasons, uh, and also the 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 toll it takes on victims has to be understood. Also, it's not easy to testify, and when you feel that the outcomes are the way they are, that they are not uh, fair or, or even just. Uh, for for many people, then the whole legitimacy or, or the whole purpose of these crimes become more more complex. That's not to say that we shouldn't have these mechanisms in place, but we need to understand the limitations. And now, of course, there is a process of prosecuting these crimes uh, domestically, uh, since uh, yeah, well, since the, the the tribunal was shut down, but also from before. Uh, and again, there we see. The, the legal system in Bosnia is also very complex. So the same kinds of crimes may get very different outcomes, even if they're sentenced. Mm-hmm. So this also adds to the kind of, let's say, uh, or gives nourishment to alternative stories about the past. It's hard to come to, or to, to agree on uh, one kind of common narrative about what happened and how to move forward in this, this uh, complex country <laughs> that it is. I want to focus a bit on what you say about the
0: limitations of these transitional justice processes. Because what we see in Bosnia is actually in many ways uh, that the battleground has shifted from the one where weapons are used to different smaller battlegrounds in different spheres of society. And even though we have had these judicial mechanisms that have tried to deal with what happened during the war we have different spheres of society where these issues continue to be a problem and continue to work against reconciliation for the Bosnian people. We see that schools are still segregated along ethnic lines. We see that children from different ethnic groups are offered different curriculums that tell different stories about what happened during the war, and also that there is a pressure on academics to portray a certain version of history. So I was wondering if you could reflect a bit on this, Saida. Uh, You are a researcher based in Sarajevo. Uh, Have you or your colleagues experienced this sort of pressure that I'm referring to?
1: well i i wanted to comment on some of the other things you said and actually give a, a that you know that's quite a, a tired phrase in bosnia rat drugim which translated into english means war with other means war by other means which is exactly what you're describing so uh, and also what years was was talking about earlier that the dayton peace agreement was there to stop stop the actual fighting, the actual uh, sort of hot war, but it, in no way did it, the, the, the peace agreement itself, did it provide even the basis for a prosperous peace. Prosperous peace would mean that uh, those guilty of perpetrating war crimes would actually be punished and would actually be uh, referred to as war crimes as opposed to heroes of of, of nations and, you know, heroes of of nationhood and so forth and triumphalized in that way. So there are often uh, comparisons which I find completely um, inappropriate between sort of what happened with with Germany, you know, post-Second World War and, you know, uh, former Yugoslavia. Well, one thing that those comparisons miss is that Germany was militarily defeated at the same time. And what we had with the Nuremberg trials and what we had with sort of uh, facing actually not just in terms of ju- the judiciary, but also military might, uh, what happened during the Second World War is in no way parallel to what Dayton actually sets up in uh, Bosnia, which is giving um, semi-statehood status to Republika Srpska. And why is it that we have this huge flare-up now? Is This is the first time, through legislation, we have any kind of uh, mention of genocide as an inappropriate way of state formation. So this is a key element here. So uh, the question that we, we should be asking is can we use genocide as a means in the 21st century as a means to uh, to establishing a state. Uh, and and this is something that Europe needs to ask itself as well. It's not just a Bosnian question. And also what is not just a Bosnian question is do we accept that you know do we accept the principle of ethnic discrimination to be Instated in law, or whether we, as as difficult as that is, and it is a very difficult pro- process, as English has, has explained, and it shows all the flaws of transitional justice. Do we insist on the European principle uh, that? Discrimination based on ethnic grounds is simply unacceptable. And this is what the rulings of the European Court for Human Rights also affirm. This is the case of Seydic and Finci, which I can explain if, if this would be interesting for, for the audience. This is the case of Azra Zornic. This is the case of Svetozar Pudaric, and many others. These are rulings of the European Court of Human Rights. That now, if we go with this narrative of uh, leading towards partition, would be annulled. So why do, we have these, uh, why do we have these courts then? What, what, what is their function? Do they have any significance is the question I would like to ask.
2: Would you like to uh, add to that, Inger? I think we are at a point of a kind of a crisis in terms of transitional justice mechanisms and the Bosnian case shows that uh, very clearly. And this is also, you know, one reason you started out by saying that, you know, there is a, there's little attention to what goes on in Bosnia. This is something that I've, having been a person who's, who's visited the country many times, uh, that I've heard people lament, you know, that they feel that forgotten. And I think that's fair to, to feel that they're forgotten. And I think it's very bad that Bosnia is forgotten by outside observers, notably the EU. Uh, But also West uh, or the Western powers is that uh, it it was a game. What happened in Bosnia was such a game changer for international politics and for a lot of mechanisms and and response mechanisms and ways that we think about conflict, peace and reconciliation that we need to be extremely attentive to what happens in Bosnia. We cannot simply let go. Uh, if I'm going to speak as an outsider. So for that reason, I think it's the questions that Aida raised are crucial, even though I don't have a very good answer. But of course, we need to, we need to, to follow uh, uh, and learn. Just from my
0: own experience, uh, when I talk to people about what happened after the breakup of Yugoslavia, it does not seem as though the story about the Srebrenica genocide has reached all audiences or people yet even though the Srebrenica genocide was the worst massacre in Europe after World War II. Um, And I think that this unawareness, if I could call it that, is especially dangerous in this day and age uh, when this trend of genocide denial and rewriting of history has become such a massive campaign coming from Republika Srpska and Serbia. Uh, We're seeing uh, that, uh, for example, the Srebrenica genocide denial report for 2021 identified at least 234 instances uh, of genocide denial in regional public discourse and media. And media is playing uh, a really big role here in sort of rewriting what actually happened. Um, So... um, Maybe you would like to reflect a bit on this, uh, Inger.
2: I'd just like to comment on, you know, having, you know, seeing what is happening in, uh, or the history of Bosnia, the history of the breakup of, of the former Yugoslavia uh, in a more contemporary and, and broader perspective. We also see now this the, the whole issue of genocide, denial, and particularly linked to, to Bosnia is also something that feeds into the whole um, kind of um, ideological landscape of the far right globally. This is why I'm also trying to say that, you know, what happens in Bosnia is not local. It's very global. Um, and we know from a Norwegian perspective, the Bering Breivik, you know, our own terrorists who, who killed uh, so many people here um, uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, He he was also, you know, inspired by... Uh, nationalism from uh, Bosnia, Serb nationalism in in particular, and the same goes for Brenton Tarrant, uh, who killed people in New Zealand. They they get inspiration from that particular conflict. Uh, so all the more reason also to be very aware of of what uh, is played out in Bosnia, how things are uh, worded and conceptualized, not just within uh the bosnian context but also how it is referred to outside and then the silencing that we experience uh outside of bosnia that there's so little not silencing in that sense that it's but it's just there's very little attention to it to what's going on i think that, that the ramifications of that uh um in this world of alternative facts and the far right can be quite uh, quite um Alarming, actually, or it, it's, it feeds into something that is, is, is very dangerous beyond Bosnian borders.
0: Uh, Aida, um, since you are based in Sarajevo, have you s- experienced this um, rise in genocide denial?
1: Well, I don't know that it would be a rise. I think it was never really, uh, you know, it was ne- it was always there. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that there's a there's a rise in recent years. I mean, uh, yes, I would ha- I would like to agree so strongly with what, what Inir said about this not being just a Bosnian phenomenon and not not just one tiny country in the Balkans that has absolutely no significance in terms of population or economically and or otherwise. Really, we are talking about principles here, and whether we accept principles. Uh, that are at least <laughs> post-second World war foreign to Europe I mean we said never again that's that's the first part the second part this emboldening of the far right throughout the world and inges mentions uh, a couple of examples one of which is very close to home to Norway with the brevik uh, situation also the Christchurch murder and other uh, other examples of, of far-right populists uh, taking inspiration from the Serbanista genocide Uh this co- uh, connection between Holocaust denial, Holocaust denial, and other types of uh, genocide denial, such as the Serbian uh, uh, genocide denial that 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 see see coalescing each other. We have a rise in populism throughout Europe that is also part of the crisis, the current crisis in in, in Bosnia, in the sense that you have a, a center right government in Slovenia that is in support of the secessionist tendency. You, you have a center right government in Hungary that is also in support of this. You have you know a, a kind of um, authoritarian move and a move away from. Liberal democracy throughout Europe. These forces now, as we see through foreign, uh, you know, the foreign policies of the EU, and to some extent the U.S., although the U.S. is not so much concerned with the Western Balkans as it is right now, remnants of the Trump era as well, the post, uh, the post-truth era, the alternative facts era, and so forth, play itself, play themselves out in Bosnia. So in fact. We cannot say that this is a, this is a tiny country that nobody really cares about. There are other things that are more important. Yes, everybody agrees with that. But however, if you accept that kind of principle of decision making, if you accept you know, sort of ethnic divisions, if you accept genocide, if you accept that you know revisionism is is, is a, you know is normal, if that's normalized. Then don't be so surprised when that kind of rhetoric and that kind of thinking comes to haunt you back home. And I'm sa- talking about back home in Europe, and I'm talking about the United States, I'm talking about the progressive uh, or liberal world as we understand it, post-second World war.
2: You had some comments. Yeah, yeah, and just to follow up on what Waida is saying there, also that's why, and you brought up earlier, Toita, the, the issue of, of divided schools. I mean, if we, <laughs> if kids don't meet, uh, and if these, um, uh, different versions of what happened in the past are not uh, discussed amongst uh, the younger generation, so that they they can grow up uh, with you know different relations to each other, and also have these stories being challenged. Then we're in for a really really dangerous situation, and that is you know what is the fact that. There are different curricula in in Bosnian schools that the the kids don't even socialize in some places. I think is is just a recipe for for future disaster. And I have just a small anecdote. I went to Srebrenica in I was giving a talk in two fifteen to commemorate um, uh, commemorate the genocide. And I hadn't been there, so I decided I wanted to go and just see for myself. And I visited this NGO that works there with like an after school um, uh, get together for kids from different, uh, ethnicities in, in Bosnia or in the, in Srebrenica. And it occurred, you know, these were, I can't remember how old they were. They must've been like seven, eight, nine years old. And of course they just wanted to play and hang out. And, <laughs> and it's so, uh, basic, but it's so important that those kids get to meet, um, that they get to be friends and that they get to 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 quote um, a scholar who has written a lot about um, Holocaust uh, and mass violence, Irvin Staub. Uh, he says that you know one of the most important things that kids. Need to learn or to in order to prevent these things from happening is that you first of all you you become friends with people from the other side so to speak but you also speak out on behalf of injustice that happens to someone who's not a member of your group that you speak out of on behalf of injustices that happens to the other quote unquote so i think that has to be learned and that has to be learned through the school system and, and that's, uh, you know, the political level that we've talked a lot about now uh, is extremely important, but also the the, the level of, of, you know, how we children are raised in very divided societies is crucial to, to counter uh, further division.
0: I want to focus a bit on these uh, efforts to counter this trend of genocide denial and uh, historical revisionism and bring up. A very powerful contribution from last year, uh, actually, um, uh, the Bosnian uh, film Saida, Aida, uh, which tells the story of the Srebrenica genocide um, in July of 1995, uh, where more than 8,000 Bosniak Muslim men and boys were killed by the Bosnian Serb army. And it tells the story through the eyes uh, of a mother who works as a translator uh, for the United Nations peacekeeping force. Uh, And it is, in my opinion, a truly remarkable film because it uh, succeeds in capturing at least a part of uh, the harrowing nature of genocide. Because we talk about genocide uh, and we often talk about it very nonchalantly, uh, but we kind of um, fail to (laughs) realize how horrific genocide is. And I thought that this film really succeeded in capturing uh, some of the essence. And uh, Inge, you actually um, interviewed uh, the director of the film, uh, Jasmila Zbanić, uh, when she was here for a screening uh, of the film here in Oslo. So I'd just like to ask, what did you think her purpose for making this film was? And uh, how do you think artistic contributions like this like this film that was nominated actually for the best international feature film at the Academy Awards last year, um, how do you think this can contribute to counter these um, this historical revisionism and genocide denial?
2: Yeah, that, that is a really powerful film, and I think everyone who hasn't seen it should see it. Um, and I think... Uh, it was interesting to, to be given, or fantastic to be given, the possibility of interviewing uh, the director. And, and she, in that interview, and she said that in many other interviews too, you know, that she that was a story that she really did. She was waiting for somebody else to make that film. You know, it's a very, uh, very uh, painful event, so if you can use that term. Uh, uh, but what she does in the film... Um, which I think is is very um, remarkable and valuable is that you know yes it is an event it happened on the, you know there is a day that we mark but it's an event that comes after a series of everyday practices that change so it's the outcome of a long process before and she I think she depicts that very well in in the film also how the the build up is you know lots of uh, big and little. Uh, things coming together that create division. Um, And the fact that she she did make the movie and that she was also able to show... We talked a little bit about in in the interview also how to depict, you know, the main players and and the the convicted criminals. Um, And uh, how to do that in a way where you also can see that they are... uh, uh, People and not monsters, that we can, not to empathize, but to understand that people who commit these acts are transformed. Um, and that they uh, and and that it, it there is something in that that forms these people into committing these acts as well. Uh, so I think that, and the and the conversations obviously that it opens up for the fact that we have had new new discussions at this difficult time in, in Bosnia also about and with everything that Aida has explained, but that we also have a film as a reference to talk about it. I think is extremely important uh, because it opens up for uh, a larger audience to to engage, and you you get uh, you you feel the really the pain of of, uh, of what happened, um, uh, and and you you can talk about it without necessarily having understood the whole complexity of the Bosnian conflict. Because this is also something that I find, having been interested in this <laughs> little country for many years, is that many people are engaged, but they, they find the conflict difficult to talk about because it's complex and they feel stupid if they don't understand who they, all the different groups are and all the... This is refer, you know from the, the outside perspective. But a film like that is able to open up and make more people... Uh, uh, follow what's going on and engage perhaps um, in ways that political analyses and newspaper articles and so on cannot do. So I think it's a very important film for that reason and and with the current situation uh, that we've just had laid out for us, uh, even more important than maybe uh, the filmmaker herself could anticipate.
0: Aida, maybe you can say something about uh, how this uh, film was received in Bosnia.
1: Oh, I agree so, so so much with what Inger just said. It is such an important film. Uh, first of all, it this, this is the first uh, attempt to actually. Uh as you say, partially capture uh, what happened with the with Srebrenica genocide. And this is the first attempt and a very successful one uh, in, in the opinion of many, many people throughout Bosnia that I've spoken to. So it's an excellent film and it's a very, very important film. Uh, what Inger said is, what is so important is, uh, you know, artists and art can communicate messages in ways that, uh, you know, people relate to in, in, in much, much easier than than through political analysis or, or, or other commentary and so forth. And part of what I see us doing here is, is trying to do a similar thing as researchers and academics, communicating these concepts that are complex. We, we don't want to be reductive. We don't want to be simplistic. But at the same time, we do want to bring forth what is actually happening so that ordinary people who have some interest in this region and not just the region but in these principles that I also talked about uh, can be engaged and be involved and, and try to make a difference so uh, speaking in a way that is truthful and but at the same time rather simple and understandable is an art form in itself and artists such as filmmakers such as Jasmin Lejbanic have done a wonderful job at doing exactly that. It is a very important film. It is also important for regional, let's say re-, re establishing of a common narrative, where we have, you know, the lead actress is from Belgrade. Jasna Ricic is, who plays Aida is, is a Serbian actress, prominent one. Uh, and also, so, you know, c- bringing this movie to Serbian to Serbian audience, which, which still hasn't happened on a large screen, and we'll see whether it will happen, like, you know, sort of this movie broadcast on RTS would be really... Uh, a very, very significant step towards uh, regional understanding what has happened, coming to terms with what has happened. I don't want to say reconciliation because reconciliation comes at the end. First, we, we need to have truth. Uh, we need to have truth and justice. And those are the preconditions for reconciliation, actual reconciliation to happen. So for this movie to be shown, uh, of course, internationally is very important. Perhaps even more importantly than that is for this movie to be shown in Banja Luka, for this movie to be shown in Pale, for this movie to be shown throughout Serbia and and Serbian audience, as well as Croatia, too. So, uh, yes, very important movie, uh, uh, came at a very, very good and opportune time for what's happening happening on the ground. And, yeah, we need more movies like that, and more movies like this coming from Serbia itself.
0: Thank you, Aida. I would just like to sum up with, like, having your reflections on, in general, uh, what the successes and shortcomings of these formal peace agreements are, uh, and what is the way forward, like, after these peace agreements, what kind of work needs to be done for actual reconciliation to happen? So now, if you would like to start, Aida. Aida.
1: Well, what, yeah, that, that is the million dollar question. What needs to be done? How do we move forward? And that is the question that is being answered, actually, or, or attempts at answering this question are underway. Now, there are many ways that uh, constitutional reform, uh, that needs to happen for this election reform to happen can go. There are many different ways in which it can go. Uh, What we see happening, unfortunately is the appeasement of both by European union and U S representatives that are being sent like Matthew Palmer and Angelina Ihorst on electoral reform uh, that are, Attempts to appease the the demands of Milorad Dodik' secessionist demands by Milorad Dodik uh, of the SSD and uh, those of uh, Dragan uh, Trogic of HVZ. Now, what is often misunderstood in terms of Bosnia, this is one of the key points here, is that this is about. Ethnicities that are at war with each other—that this is somehow, you know, warring parties and ethnic conflict and uh, these type type of ter- terms that are very much tribalizing the whole situation. It really, this is not true. I mean, we need to dis- dispel this myth. And I'd like to hear Inger's uh, also uh, opinion on this. What we have here is. Partitocracy, which is a term from political science from comparative politics that talks about the rule of individual parties. So now, if you say that all Serbs, in fact, are represented by Milorad Dodik, and all Croats are represented by uh, uh, Dragan Čović of HDZ, and the international community is discussing these issues with them as what ethnic representative tribal representatives some 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 sort then that's one way of thinking but that thinking is not true simply based on election results I mean they're uh, Draguncović of HDZ had received 120,000 votes votes in the last election. There's three times that amount of ethnic Croats in Bosnia, according to the last census. So he is not himself a legitimate representative in terms of what we understand to be legitimacy uh, in political science, which is given through voting, right? In a democracy, legitimacy is given through uh, voting and through elections. Now, That principle of uh, negotiating deals outside of institutions with these people who are self-proclaimed ethnic leaders needs to be abandoned for actual successful constitutional and electoral reform to happen. Now, is this easy? No, it is not. It is a very difficult, it is an arduous process of both from the European side and the U.S. side insisting on its own principles, insisting on the application of the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights, which says very clearly we cannot have ethnicity-based or other grounds-based discrimination in any types of political life. This is very, very clear. Now, can we expect uh, this type of uh, one-person, one-vote reform to happen? Can we expect entire abandonment, entire abandonment of the ethnic principle in Bosnia, where the basis of the Dayton peace agreement is uh, consocialism based on ethnicity, ethnic power sharing, that probably is too idealistic. But finding a compromise, some kind of compromise that is closer to the civic option, is key for these constitutional and electoral reforms to, to happen. I mean, I, I really don't see any other way out unless we want to say everything that the European Union is based on basically is not not, not applicable in, in Bosnia.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Aida. And I think that it, it, I'm not really sure always that people understand the, the way in which ethnicity steers everything in political life in Bosnia. I mean, you cannot be an elected person if you do not belong to one of the major ethnic groups, So Roma people, Jewish people are discriminated. And as you're saying, we're accepting this in a European country today. It, it is incomprehensible in a way. Uh, so yes, I agree completely with Aida. I think another thing that we, if, as a way forward, would be also to to make the country um, a place where young people want to to stay and build their lives. I mean, there's a huge... Uh, issue with uh, young people wanting to leave and that they see no future. Uh, And I think this is extremely unfortunate uh, for for many, many reasons. Um, And then, like you said in the beginning, I've started now a project um, looking at children born by by the war in Bosnia, uh, meaning that they were either conceived through war rapes or by foreign soldiers who were there. Uh, and one of the... the I'm, I'm in contact with the, the group of, of these uh, children who are now in their late 20s, so they are now young professionals. Uh, and they are also working for you know to make a situation in which young people actually stay, and that is also very important to, to make a state that uh, has a future uh, for for the people who live there. So there needs to be jobs, but there also needs to be a political uh, framework around them in which they can can. Uh, they can be um, uh, or have power and also uh, contribute to the changes that need to come within, from within the country.
0: Unfortunately,
2: we ran out
0: of time, and there are so many facets to this topic uh, that we could have discussed and that we've not had the time to discuss. I would like to thank you both for your valuable insights and I hope that we can bring up this discussion again in the future. Uh, Thank you so much.